0: You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. It's February 24th. Today marks one year since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. Over the last 12 months, we've seen intense fighting, thousands of casualties, and even nuclear saber-rattling by Moscow. Last week, I was joined by RAND researcher Dara Massiko. She's an expert on Russian military strategy, combat operations, and escalation dynamics, and we discussed what's unfolded in Ukraine over the last year, recent developments in the conflict, and what might happen next. You can follow Dara on Twitter at @massdara. that's M-A-S-S-D-A-R-A. Dara was also one of nearly 30 RAND researchers that we polled for a feature about the anniversary of Russia's invasion. You can find this feature right now on RAND.org. Here's our conversation. Dara, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. What were the initial signs that Russia was getting ready to launch this invasion of Ukraine? And how did those evolve until an attack became inevitable?
1: Well, I think we need to probably pull back to the spring of 2021. There was a lot of really unusual activity going on in the Russian military where units were being moved around and deployed to Ukraine. A lot of those units did not leave and return to their home garrisons. And at the time, the Russian military had a very unusual reason for that. They said, oh, we're keeping these in in Western Russia for the Zapod exercise, which has never really been done before. So I think there was a lot of concern, even in the summer of 21, that something was off, and that process really started to accelerate after the exercise ended. None of these none of these units went home, and they just stayed near the border of Ukraine, and the process accelerated. So, really, it was it was a hard um, thing to watch in slow motion. I'm sure you remember all the videos of the tanks moving on the rail cars and then moving to training areas the whole time the Russian government was, you know, talking sideways about, oh, this is just training, there's nothing to see here. And things began, things began to get more and more serious as February approached. that's when you started seeing things like field hospitals showing up. You started seeing equipment sets um, that were maybe 100 miles um, away from Ukraine, breaking apart, and things moving near the border. And then you saw it, in the days uh running up i think it was a week in advance they started spray painting all the vehicles with the z's and the o and the Mm -hmm. v um at that point it was just waiting for it to go in so it was a slow build but then everything all at once at the end
0: i remember hearing how they were bringing up like blood transfusions uh and that which is something that you know you don't you don't do for a training exercise, right?
1: Right. No, that's that is a, a very serious indicator. Another indicator to me at the time, um, not only of the invasion, but there was something something wrong um, with how they were doing it. Um, if you remember, uh, they they said that the Russian forces that they were bringing from the far east, this is eleven time zones away, um, they brought them on a uh, train all the way to Belarus. Took two weeks to get there, and they had them doing exercises, and then. Magically, you know, three or four days uh, before the invasion, they said, oh, there's a there's been a delay, you know, we're going to stay here for a while. And to me, that really signaled that the high command was was um, making a series of mistakes with how it was running this from a personnel perspective, like lying um, to the soldiers. About What they were doing there. And at the time, I thought, okay, this is part of the OPSEC, maybe surely they're not lying to their invasion force. But we, we, we knew within, within days that that is indeed what they did.
0: Not to get not to get too far ahead, but Russia made a lot of mistakes um, in its invasion of Ukraine and in the follow up days. Um, And we'll get to I'd like to talk a little bit more about like, Russian logistics and how they move personnel and equipment around. But it also seems like in the days leading up to the invasion that everyone, seemingly everyone knew except for Russian troops and Russian leadership that this was going to happen.
1: Right. So I it's um, unfortunately this has happened in their history, in their recent history, Um, in their invasion of Ukraine in 2014. There was the same kind of pattern where they didn't necessarily tell everyone that they were going um, inside Ukraine. And, you know, the, of course, they denied to the world that they were even in there in the first place. It was just polite people and little green men. Um, th- this also is a pattern that um, existed in to various degrees in Chechnya, and especially in Afghanistan, where they would tell Soviet conscripts, um, you're, you're not going to Afghanistan, you're going to go plow some fields, and then surprise, they'd get off the um, aircraft in Tashkent and would be deployed in. So unfortunately, this is a this is a pattern for them. But I agree with you. The Russian war plan was already in the press. It it had been debunked or pre-bunked, I should say, by uh, the Biden administration. And the Ukrainians knew and were waiting for the Russians. So it it appeared that um, a lot of people knew except for a sizable percentage of their actual infantry.
0: Which strikes me as a very Bad way to to plan for um, and conduct an invasion, and I think it's indicative of deeper strategic errors that like Russia makes, and just sort of the the way that Russia kind of treats its own military. It's a very they don't. They don't show a lot of regard for for human life. No, they In don't.
1: America. They don't. And, and I've I've written about this. There is a there's a deep seated problem, um, within the Russian military culture, and that is a, a fairly um, high level of disregard for their human capital. I, it's it's very different from how we do things, and you know I try not to apply you know how how the U.S. military does things. They're they're a different country, different background, different context, but. Um, there was an effort, you know, 15 years ago to try to reform and modernize. And it seems like the hardware was easy for them to fix new tanks, new jets, new missiles. But the the human aspect of this, even though they made attempts to do it, um, it really didn't sink in all the way. And when push comes to shove, you know, they went back to this Soviet command style of distrust up and down the chain. Um, from you know top to down top to bottom bottom up um, distrust and and you really see that playing a role in ukraine i mean the unit cohesion is terrible morale is terrible
0: yeah i've read about a lot of um critical parts go go missing uh, there's just a lot of corruption within the ranks, even in the upper levels um i've also read a lot about the really awful hazing traditions that exist in the Russian military and um I've heard stories about soldiers not being paid on time or at all can you talk to where this sort of attitude might come from in terms of like the the historical background is it is it something that comes from like the soviet era or
1: um, well, you know, there's there's a lot of Soviet legacy in in their you know, personnel policies, and, and you know, to their credit, they've they've made a lot of changes over the last decade or so. And we actually have a RAND report that will be out later this spring that goes through the last thirty years of how they've tried to to change this. So they've They've instituted a lot of different policies like automatic transfer of money so that um, cash doesn't have to flow through the unit commander to um, the individual soldiers. That's a, a relatively recent change I mean in the last decade mm-hmm. really, to try to cut down on some of these issues and there have been serious attempts to um, fix many of the aspects of military life, and you know not all of them were fully executed but I think you know to get back to your to your larger question about corruption. It's, uh, you know, there's been lots of documentaries out there about senior members of the Russian military brass that have mansions, and they go on these very elaborate, you know, vacations um, to Europe. So this is all happening in the open. It's it's part of the larger ecosystem in Russia. The military cannot be separate from the society that it's in right so Mm um there there are some there are some issues um despite their forward progress um i I think there really is this instinctive um when they're going to war um still um kind of soviet mentality of we're gonna you know (laughs) not one step back you know like the old stalin saying and like this, this this way that they treat each other and you contrast that with how the ukrainians are trying to to learn and break free from their soviet past Mm -hmm. and you don't see that kind of i mean there's still some aspects of the ukrainian military that are trying to get rid of these things Mm -hmm. but by and large um you see this this different way in how they 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 treat each other how the command relationships work how the unit cohesion is working um it's it's really quite stark
0: let's go back to um the impetus for this invasion and how much of this is just coming straight from the top from from Vladimir Putin and his and his top circle?
1: Well, I, you know I think it does I think it does come a lot from Putin. this is a this is a project for him. He had this very um, bizarre um, article that he wrote. I think it was um, a year ago talking about you know Ukraine's history and it's really not an independent country. It's we all have this shared past. I recommend anyone who's curious about his state of mind to to read that um, note, read that letter that he wrote. Um, but I I do think that this was this invasion plan was cooked up by a small group of people at the top, and it appears now from what we know in the news and then how it played out on the ground um, that this was this was not really a plan that was disseminated with all the key stakeholders that you would need for something like this. You cannot box out your logisticians from an attack on one of the largest countries in Europe in the way that they didn't expect success. But that, that's, that's how they did it. Um, you know, I'm not sure all of the reasons why now he felt like this is the time. I think there was a hubris about our military is good enough. It can do it. The Ukrainians won't fight back. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a network of spies in Ukraine that are well uh, that are well placed and are, are willing to be this you know shadow government that we're going to stand up. And yep. then none of those things were true.
0: The Russians did have. You tell me um, fairly successful campaigns in Syria. And in eastern Ukraine.
1: Yeah. So you know, if we if we go back to you know the characteristics that made those operations you know relatively successful, uh, the the 2014 invasion of Ukraine, the, the Ukrainian military was in a different place at that time. They um, had not received as much training. They hadn't learned lessons from being at war for eight years, like they have by the time the invasion kicked off last year uh the syria operation was different too because it really it was an air war and it really wasn't contested in any meaningful way i mean the russians took a few losses from from man pads but not a contested air environment right but i think stepping back from it i these are also operations that were led by grasimov not him personally but you know he was in the hot seat as these things were going on Um, those were far more limited there was limited goals limited objectives and the force that they had brought um, for those limited objectives made sense so that's why it's so surprising when you look at at the invasion last year or operation z as they call it um, really large departure from his style and from the things that he once advocated which he advocated a strategy of limited actions where you you keep it small small as possible to achieve what you need Um, so I, you know i i'm speculating here but i do think that there was probably some kremlin interference in here just because it as an invasion plan it didn't make a lot of sense mm-hmm. it didn't make a lot of sense from the, the force structure that they had it didn't make a lot of sense for straining their logistics it didn't make a lot of sense for their own strategy how they prosecuted it um so i i have to think that the Kremlin may have handed down some objectives here. Like we're going to go in, we're going to get Zelensky. This whole thing's going to kick in. And you start to feel like the influence maybe of Russian intelligence in that process. And mm-hmm. there's there's been some reports that suggest that that, that ha- was what happened.
0: Russia made a lot of day one mistakes um, during this invasion. Can we like go over a few? And I personally would like to start with The lack of air power on day one was really surprising to me. Um, It's sort of a basic first step: is you go in and you know, very high precision coordinated airstrikes to soften up targets so that you can then bring in you know, boots on the ground. Um, And we didn't see that out of Russia, and we still haven't seen that.
1: That's true, and you know, we we (laughs) Rand has studied this a lot. I think we have a report that's published on. the initial period of war, as it's called in in Russian theory, it is supposed to look a certain way, and that did not happen on day one. So Mm -hmm. you're you're correct. Um, Air power should have been in the lead. If they were following their doctrine in this regard, they would have led with significant airstrikes and missile strikes for days or weeks Mm -hmm. before you even commit most of your army. But that's not what happened. They committed them at the exact same time and what happened uh, what we know now, the story's a little more nuanced than some of the early takes on it, which was oh, Russian air power is totally missing it wasn't it was it was present, and it was it was acting it was going after um, fixed um, Ukrainian military targets. It was trying to disable airfields. It was trying to disable that ground-based air defense that it w- would become so critical, uh, a critical problem for them later on. Right. Um, those assets relocated just in time. Like there's videos, literally, of Ukrainian um, airplanes like taking off and missiles are like coming, like and hitting. Um, but you know, it's that's a that's a real. Real question for me at the time, you know, I'm texting, like, other colleagues in the field, like, are you seeing this? Like, why, why are they doing it this way? Um, and that was a, a critical flaw for them because, as you know, the Russian army ran into trouble in the north right away. Um, the columns, you know, backing up, right. artillery fire coming in on them. The Russian Air Force was actually pivoted from its missions, which was going after those you know fixed targets, to doing close air support. And trying to save the army and they really weren't prepared for that mission it didn't go well that's why you saw all those early russian losses because they were essentially flying right into ukrainian stinger envelopes and ukrainian sam envelopes they were they were getting hit Mm -hmm. so it wasn't that they weren't using their air force they were just misusing it and the same kind of misuse you saw early day one of the Russian airborne, I mean it, whether it was their failed attack at Hostomel, mm-hmm. or you know running the 70, uh, 76 GAD straight down with no preparation. Um, they, you know, that was the unit, of course, that was in Bucha and is you know accused of um, all sorts of uh, war crimes mm-hmm. um, for what it did there. So yeah, just compounding um, mistakes, um, you know, opening days, opening weeks when that theoretically should have been russia's advantage and it it wasn't
0: one of the things that i've noticed has gone extremely wrong for russia and i would almost call this a comedy of errors is their logistics can you tell me a little bit more about about what specifically went wrong
1: well i think i think the first thing that went wrong was their campaign plan i mean their operational plan to attack Ukraine from so many different angles and it, on such extended lines really stretch their logistics to the breaking point. Um, you know, if they were doing this in a way that made more sense logistically, they probably would have consolidated that and attacked from the east and the south maybe at maximum. But this whole arc, you know, coming in from Belarus and on down to Kyiv... Kiev was a priority objective with the most strained logistics and the most congested route to to attack. Mm -hmm. Um, The Ukrainians were very successful in the early um, weeks attacking Russian logistics convoys. They're trucks. They're not really heavily um, defended and the Russians were not defending them. Um, and they weren't even doing route clearance. They weren't doing route clearance for their tanks. They certainly don't have the means to do route clearance for their logistics. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the trucks and some of their best logistical uh, troops, logisticians, excuse me, um, were killed um, early on, destroyed um, equipment early on. And it really put them in a bind and limited their ability to progress. Um now, they did correct for some of these issues by the time that they had consolidated um, into the Donbass. By the summertime, their logistics lines are shorter. Russia uses a lot of rail inside, um, inside their own country, and they're also using a lot of rail um, inside Ukraine. And there's some speculation that the reason why we're seeing the offensives that we're seeing right now is because they want to press um, or push back the Ukrainians a little bit farther so that they can have rail coverage all the way up to the front. Mm -hmm. Um, They are having to um, make a lot of changes to how they do logistics inside Ukraine because Ukraine has HIMARS now. And so they're having to move all of that back, um, you know, towards uh, I think it's like 80 or 100 kilometers back away from all of those things. And and that that affects op tempo as well. Mm -hmm. So it's um, logistics matter. Uh, the Russians, the Russians, theoretically know a lot about logistics, and yet that really didn't happen for them. And I, you know, we, we talked about it earlier: the, the secrecy and I, what I assume to be a very compartmented, um, secretive plan probably contributed.
0: Should Russia have predicted Western support to the degree that that Ukraine got?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that that's another um, you know huge. Component for why this war has has turned out the way that it has for Russia, I think that um, they certainly weren't anticipating the comprehensive nature of, of what we're providing to Ukraine at this point. I mean, you know, whether it's you know, air defense systems, whether it's M triple seven artillery or HIMARS, or mm-hmm. you know all all of these you know things that we're doing now, it's Leopard tanks and other kind of armored vehicles. I think the Russians were assuming that. Our support for Ukraine would continue at the level that it was in the immediate run-up to the war, which was pretty small um, stuff. You know, it was meaningful but small—Javelin, mm-hmm. um, Stingers, bullets, you know, those kind of those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Russians were calculating. You know, okay, I have a rough estimate of Ukraine's organic, you know, supplies, artillery rounds they can't last that long they'll last a couple months at most and if you listen to ukrainian officers who are like speaking to the press at this time they're actually saying those kind of things like you know we're around april or may they're like we're running really low like we need you know we're this is critical mm-hmm. and that's when us systems started flowing in and all these 155 rounds and things like that so you know there was a, some russian estimation there that that was was of uh, ukrainian stockpiles anyway that was probably fairly close to the mark
0: mm-hmm.
1: I don't know, Um, you know, I think there was a lot of hubris going on on the Russian side. We know now from different kinds of media reports out there that um, US officials sat their Russian counterparts down at multiple times. Um, Starting, you know, in November with CI Director Burns and Patrushev, um, with Blinken and Lavrov, um, President Biden to President Putin, saying, look, we know about your plan and we're going to get involved. Like, don't do this. Mm -hmm. And the the Russians, according to these reports, basically shrugged it off and said it won't matter, which is a huge mistake. Um, That being said, I, I do think that there was a pivot in our policy towards Ukraine that happened like right after the war started Mm -hmm. is if you go back in time, if you're reading things that in January, um, January and February, at least what's in the, what's in the press. I don't know what the conversations were, you know, behind, behind closed doors, but the press suggested that um, there was this idea that um, Ukraine could not hold off this invasion, that things would kind of degenerate into like a, you know, partisan um, kind of event. So when that didn't happen and Zelensky said, you know, I need ammunition, I don't need a ride, um, you know, and mm-hmm. everything kind of coalesced, I think there was a pivot. Um, in that support that they the Russians were not anticipating and have not been able to cope with. They are not willing or not able to um impact those weapons flows into Ukraine, and it's having a, a devastating impact in some cases on their front.
0: I mean, they almost certainly weren't expecting the war to last as long as it has well, already. Yeah, so.
1: for sure. I mean, they, they thought this was a short thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they weren't expecting the sanctions absolutely devastating to their economy um, in impacting their own supply chains to the to the extent that they have. Particularly I think like this summer, there is a big, um, there was a big turn, I think, I noticed in, in not Western support, but the kind of support that we gave and I'm thinking of like HIMARS in particular, and how like wildly successful that has been at like pushing Russian positions back. Um, can you talk a little bit about yeah, no, I, HIMARS I, in particular? yeah, there's
1: there's been a few um, you know points in time where something has been introduced um, into Ukraine and it's it's really made made an impact. And you know there there's different phases to it, right? So there was the the pre-war deliveries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know of of javelins and stingers and they had their role um by the summertime we started getting um, more artillery more precision rounds those kind of things and and the russians um it took them about a month and a half to two months to like cope and understand i mean you probably saw the videos on twitter of you know these ammunition depots exploding and mm-hmm. the ukrainians targeting command and control nodes uh, Russians did eventually overcome that. You know, they had figured this out by, I don't know, uh, maybe July, August, they started making changes. But I think the summer was really this when, when all of these things started flowing in in large numbers.
0: Do you see this as escalatory at all?
1: I mean, the Russians would have you believe that, but that's not really how they think about um, escalation. And, you know, when I think about escalation, I think about Starting from the the most serious case, which is escalating to nuclear war, right? Right. So that's that's at the very top, Mm -hmm. and um, there's nothing that has been provided to Ukraine um, now um, that even comes close to that those Russian red lines. I mean, Ukraine cannot Mm -hmm. inflict the kind of damage on Russia that would cross those nuclear thresholds that they discuss in their doctrine like i mean ukraine has no nuclear weapons that they can attack russia with
0: oh that russia you discusses know, in its Ru- yeah doctrine.
1: that russia do- discusses so when you when you hear these um you know russian leaders making these like nuclear saber saber rattling statements about you know this system or that system it doesn't make sense, um, according to what they say in their own military doctrine, right? So this, there's a few tripwires that would cause Russia to consider nuclear weapons. And I think it's important to, to remember these things. If they're attacked with nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. if, or, or their allies, mm-hmm. or WMD, mm-hmm. or if there's a massive conventional attack on Russia that threatens the very existence of the state. And Ukraine is not capable of doing any of those things. So I'm, I'm not worried about that. Um, that's from the military side of the house. But then there's this wild card question of does, you know, is there a distinction or is there a difference, um, for how, you know, someone like Putin thinks about things? Like, Mm -hmm. does he view, let's say, a collapse of the Russian front in Ukraine as an existential threat to him? Right. and is then he looking for you know give me give me a solution yeah and all of that is hypothetical right we don't we don't actually know mm-hmm. um how he would respond um in that circumstance we just have a few data points um you know if we if we go back to like the kharkiv um collapse um this was in um, September of last year when the Ukrainian counteroffensive was happening um, in the south and also a surprise one um, up in the north and mm-hmm. a bunch of really spread out weakened Russian units were unable to like deal with that and panic set in and the whole thing just kind of collapsed in on itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know if that were to happen like across the front, you know I think you know there's a sort of a panicked response that might set in into the Kremlin at that time. Um but again, there's nothing I can point to as a researcher to say here's precedent for this situation. It's sure. it's something I think people have on their minds. But um overall, there's no kind of support that we're providing to Ukraine to allow them to defend themselves that's gonna cross your nuclear red line. I mean, it's just not it's not possible.
0: Yeah. Just to clarify for me, because I don't know this, but I assume that Vladimir Putin has authority to launch nuclear weapons similarly to the president of the US.
1: He does, but there's there's a lot of other um, there's a lot of other sign-offs that have to occur um, below that. Um, I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not not a, not an expert in all of those sign-offs. It's not a unilateral authority. No, no, <laughs> okay. it is not. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, that's a bit of a relief. Maybe um, has this conflict played out like you expected it would? Has has anything about it surprised you?
1: Where to where to begin? Um, it, there have been multiple things that surprised me. Um, again, I think the early mistakes for how they led off the war it really undermined a lot of their advantages, and it exacerbated a lot of disadvantages they they did have. You know, they have known manning problems. Um, you know, they ha- they were supposed to have an air force advantage um, over the Ukrainians, and they they didn't utilize that uh, very well. Um, and there's there's maybe some reasons organizationally why why that's happening. Um, you know, I. I assumed that they would not lie to their troops about the fact that they were going to fight a war like this only because they had committed basically all of them that they could commit. What an incredible risk. And yet they didn't. Um, Even though their war plan was blown <laughs> publicly and in private conversations with the Americans, mm-hmm. they didn't deviate from it. They didn't even change it. Um, what it, it just the some callousness, I guess, or the hubris, assuming that everything would work out according to plan was surprising again, just because of, of the risk that they took by committing everything in at one time um, with no follow on force. And, you know, like the, I guess I also have been surprised that, um, you know, it took them as long as it did to realize that they needed mobilization. They tried a few um, ad hoc methods to do this over the summertime, and it didn't pan out. And then they they ordered a mobilization, but again, there are and we've written about this here at RAND. There's multiple legal steps that they need to take in the run up to a mobilization, mm-hmm. and I I don't see any evidence that they actually prepared for that either. And, um, and you wrote yeah. that
0: this is against their own. Their own stated military doctrine, right? Right.
1: there is a there is a pro, and this is what like I you know I'm trying to like tell people is that like there is a process for mobilization to make sure that when you actually mobilize and you open up the factory doors, like all the uniforms and stuff are there as they're supposed to be. There's a process for it, and you know they didn't they didn't do that process, even though it was clear to outside observers that eventually they were going to need to do mobilization. Um, I have been surprised also that they continue to be very conservative with their air force. Um, it is still a, a force in being. They have lost multiple squadrons at this point, a fixed and rotary wing, but um, overall, it's still you know mostly intact. Um, they are willing to at where they are right now is literally throwing human waves at Ukrainian positions without air cover in most cases, maybe with the exception of Bakhmut currently. Um, I've been surprised about that. Um, I've been surprised that they are not, um, they are hitting Ukraine um, with missiles, and that is very devastating for Ukraine. Um, However, they're not really learning on how to improve their targeting. And
0: they're running out of precision fires, too. They are. They are
1: running out of precision fires, and you see that they're able to, launch waves of, you know, maybe 30 to 70 missiles like every two or three weeks. That's Mm -hmm. about what they can probably do at this point. Uh, It's not an overwhelming um, missile strike.
0: But they were targeting like electrical grids and infrastructure recently. So they do seem to be like learning a little bit about about tactical advantage and like where to strike.
1: They do. And, you know, there's – but I want to add a little context to it. I mean, this is part of how they have – um, learned and looked back at previous um, U.S. operations over time, um, whether it was Yugoslavia or whether it was you know um, some of the campaigns against Iraq, and they've come up with their own conclusions about you know what makes that work and what doesn't. But they don't have the resources that we did, right? So they have a limited ability to launch missiles, and not just the missiles themselves, but like a limited launch tubes on aircraft and ships. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no follow-on. Um, they they have used cyber attacks. Uh, they've used a lot of them, but the Ukrainians are able to bat away um, a lot of them. There's not really a, a ton of synergy there um, to, to really make this effective. So, yes, they, they are capable of understanding the Ukrainian power grid, and, and they are targeting it, and it is resulting in millions of Ukrainians being without heat or water. Um, Ukrainians are working very hard to get that back online. But there's a bit of a problem in Russian strategy on this point. Like you it's almost like their strategy is saying, okay, we're going to cause these strikes on critical infrastructure. Something magic happens in the middle. And then end state, you right. know, the enemy capitulates and is no longer able to. Uh, I mean, is it what stage two <laughs>
0: is it that they're trying to just like inflict as much misery as they can on civilian population? Or?
1: That's true. I mean, I, I don't I don't know if that's, you know, part of the equation here is I'm going to, you know, me, Russia, I'm going to make everything so miserable um, for Ukrainians that you know it will what bring people to the streets and overthrow Zelensky. I mean, that's that's not happening. Right. Like, the, the, Zelensky very early on came out with something I thought was very effective. And he said like he was addressing the nation he was like if the choice is between lightness and dark being in the dark we choose and you like we choose the dark or if the choice is between you or being cold we choose cold like you know and it was just i thought that was Mm -hmm. really effective because he was going after kind of like the guts Mm -hmm. of that whole striking the critical infrastructure Um, and it you know it hasn't really produced results they're expending a lot of missiles to do this but it's not leading to any strategic effect
0: yeah and the ukrainian resolve is still incredibly strong their will to fight is huge
1: right and if anything they've they've just made them more angry right
0: (laughs) um so what aspects of the conflict are you following most closely right now
1: well so i'm following what appears to be the russian you know spring offensive everyone's been talking about when is it going to happen What are they going to do with the remainder of these mobilized forces? How are they going to use them? And I think we're seeing that right now. There are limited local offensives in areas like Bakhmut and Krimina and Svatovia. And these are areas that are in Luhansk and Donetsk. Mm -hmm. So it appears that there has been a directive from the Kremlin push farther. And maybe that's to the political boundary of these oblasts. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out like what is what is the, the stopping point right now that the Kremlin expects, I do think that there, again, is daylight between what the Kremlin wants and what the military can actually deliver based on the damage that it's sustained. Um, so I'm watching those engagements um, in multiple um, places. Um, I'm keeping an open mind um, to a, a larger offensive. Um, I don't think Russia has a lot of resources right now to do that. I think they would need more mobilization, and they would have to pull um, tanks and everything else even more than they've already done from strategic reserves out in Siberia. I don't see the signs of that happening, but it it could. Like they still have millions of people that are military age; that they could mobilize. They haven't. Um, they still have um, a lot of equipment out in Siberia. Some of it's very old and not and not even functional, but some of it is. Um, and you can, you can see it on Google earth. It's out there and it's moving. They've been drawing down on it. So, you know, it, it remains something in the back of my mind. Um, that's, that's what I think, um, is happening now. Um, the Russian tactics are shifting again. It's a lot of, you know, brute force frontal assaults using infantry and in waves to light up Ukrainian positions. And then, you know, other forces try to target. It is, um, it is wearing on the Ukrainians. So even though it it looks, you know, it, everyone can see it on Twitter, it looks bad for Russia. It's it's stressing the Ukrainians too. Um, so that's that's what I'm that's what I'm looking for uh, for now. And then I remain ambiently concerned about what the Russian air force is doing. Like as we you know as we said. It still remains largely intact. What are they? What are they waiting for? And I, I don't I like seen, that it's that it's happening.
0: Yeah, and I haven't seen Russia in general using kind of their their best stuff, if you will. So, like the Su fifty seven has yet to like make an appearance. Now they only have like sixteen of those. <laughs> no, no, those, so, yeah, but
1: if, if that, I think, it's, I think it's actually less. But it's more like a prototype, really, than mm-hmm. um, anything else.
0: But tanks too. So they're I don't know why they're keeping so much in reserve.
1: Well, they've. I mean, the losses to the the tank fleet are um, extreme. I mean, they've lost a. You know, I think it's up boards around a thousand okay. at this point, which is half their active wow. duty tank uh, fleet. Okay. Now that being said, they have. Um, they have thousands in storage, but again, of those thousands, a small percentage actually functions well. Um, some can be cannibalized for parts. Some are have been sitting out in Siberian fields for 15 years. Like you're not going to get a lot of juice out of that tank. Uh, but you know, it is it is something to worry about, be- and especially you know, keeping in mind, um, Ukraine it, it, Ukraine is being supplied now, um, to the tune of I think it's 100 Leopard tanks. I mean, the the numbers. The numbers favor the russians qualitatively it favors the ukrainians sure. but it's yeah. you know these, these things are still dynamics are still present
0: yeah well if the number of high mars units like taught us anything uh what was it like a couple dozen oh, mars? yeah i
1: think they have around a, like 16 16 yeah. 17 at this point yeah
0: wildly effective so yes um but wrapping things up so what do you think is going to happen next and is there an end anywhere in sight
1: um, i I wish I wish I could answer that question um with any kind of confidence um but you know just looking at the dynamics playing out um it it seems that um, Putin still has um, his large objectives for Ukraine, which is neutralizing it um, I don't think that that's possible. I don't think their force can uh, take another run at Kiev even if they ordered another round of mobilization i it, it's not possible anymore. Um, I think they would struggle, um, even trying to open up another front uh, against Kharkiv, even with an additional round of of mobilization I mean, this uh, is
0: this is amazing and a huge departure from what everyone was saying at the beginning of the war, which is that this is this is a small, scrappy country against an overwhelming force and and defeat was inevitable. and
1: yeah, and, uh, you know the, a lot of things really combined here to break against the Russians, you know mm-hmm. they um you know ukrainian resistance is comprehensive uh western support is comprehensive um you know their plan had a lot of problems and you know their own internal dynamics put it into a very secretive place that nobody really knew about it so you know a lot of things combined here um for this result but it's the fight is not over um the russian's Continue to try to press forward, even though the, their force is exhausted. They're, they've been told you will go forward. Um, the Ukrainians are exhausted too, and they need a lot of support. Um, politically, I don't see um, Zelensky ever um, negotiating with the Russians for territorial concessions. I I don't know if I don't know if the conflict will freeze um, or be a stalemate for a while. I, I don't know how um, the this, this spring and summer will 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 um, end. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it's, it's very much a a war in progress and I I don't see an off ramp.
0: Thank you so much for talking with me. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Dara Massico, senior policy researcher. Obviously there's a lot that we weren't able to cover today, but if you'd like to hear more from Dara, you can follow her on Twitter at MassDara. That's M-A-S-S-D-A-R-A. Dara was also one of several RAND researchers, nearly 30 in fact, that we polled for a feature about the anniversary of Russia's invasion. We asked them to share notable takeaways from the first year of the war and to highlight what they're watching as the conflict enters year two. You can find this feature right now on RAND.org. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. See you next week.